0: Good evening, everyone. It's great to see you in the house of the Lord. All I can say is, Linda and I love you, too. If you have your Bible, turn to one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5. 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5. Let's see what David and Bathsheba are up to. 2 Samuel 11, 1 to 5. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. On the surface, of course, this tragic story is not hard to understand, is it? While Joab, the commander of the army, was continuing to subdue the Ammonites the following spring by besieging Rabah, that's the modern Amman, the capital of Jordan, what was David doing? He was residing in Jerusalem. By mentioning the fact that normally kings led their armies into battle in the spring, the writer of 2 Samuel here is implying that David was not acting responsibly. He was staying in Jerusalem. Leading the troops into battle in those days was expected to be the major external activity of an ancient Near Eastern ruler. Our most difficult times are not when things are going hard. We know that. Hard times create dependent people. You don't get proud when you are dependent on God. Survival keeps you humble. Pride happens when everything is swinging in your direction like it was at this time for King David. That's the time to watch out, especially if you're unaccountable. David's temptation here followed the age-old pattern. He saw, he desired, and he took. Sounds a lot like Adam and Eve, doesn't it, in Genesis 3? Sounds a lot like what James was talking about in James 1, 14 to 15. He could not help but seeing, but he could have stopped watching, could have stopped lusting. He didn't need to send to Bathsheba and certainly didn't need to lie with her. Perhaps Bathsheba was not totally innocent here, but that does not eliminate David's guilt. It seems reasonable to assume that she could have shielded herself from view if she would really wanted to. Yet the writer never explicitly blamed, Dave, blamed Bathsheba for what happened to David. In any event... David sent for Bathsheba. Evidently, this is what we would call in our time a one-night stand. David and Bathsheba appear to have had sex only on one occasion before they were married. Having just completed her menstrual cycle, the reason for her purification, Bathsheba was physically ready to conceive. David was surrounded, of course, by many pleasant things. He was the king of Israel but that was not enough for him he'd not learned to be content with what god had given him he'd set his heart on the one thing that was forbidden sounds a lot like adam again doesn't it why did bathsheba inform david that she was pregnant anyway could she have not just told her husband privately was she hoping that david would acknowledge her child maybe give royal privileges to this child. I think she told David because she hoped he would do something to help her. After all, if she had told Hariah, he was a pretty smart Hittite. I think he could have figured out the child was not his. As I've studied this passage over the years, I've come to believe that there are four principles here, four principles, four warnings as a guide to living that we as believers can and should learn from David's experience with Bathsheba. I want to share those four principles for Christian living with you this evening. I think the first principle here is, even people with the highest of character can be overcome by temptation. No one is bulletproof. All should be on their guard. Certainly the author of 2 Samuel would agree with me in 1 Samuel A lot of time and effort, a lot of scripture was spent developing the idea that David was a person of very high moral character. After all, he was chosen by God to succeed Saul as king of Israel. Why? Because he was a man after God's own heart. He was anointed by Samuel at God's direction. He served Saul very loyally indeed. He miraculously, of course, killed Goliath. With the Lord's help, he resisted retaliation when Saul became jealous of him. After all, everybody knew Saul had slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Saul repeatedly tried to kill David, but David refused to kill Saul. After having numerous chances to do so, he decided to let the Lord be the judge. His loyalty and friendship with Jonathan is a role model relationship, brother to brother. As king, David repeatedly called on the Lord for advice and help before going into battle. He wouldn't have dreamed of making a move with the army without checking with the Lord first. David punished the man who claimed to have killed Saul. After all, God's anointed should not be killed by man. David honored the descendants of Saul, Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan. This was unheard of in those days. When you won out over your rival, you killed all his descendants. He humbled himself before the Lord repeatedly. When he did sin, in this case with Bathsheba, he asked for forgiveness. Well, admittedly, with a little help from Nathan, he wrote the most beautiful psalm of Contrition, Psalm fifty-one. He wrote verses like, "Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin against you. You only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And then these beautiful words in verse ten: Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me." I've wondered how many millions of times Christians around the world, believers around the world, have prayed that very prayer. But as moral and upright as David was, nevertheless, that night, David, a man of great moral character, found himself on the roof, I would consider, a very least likely candidate. In our day, Christians... And Christian leaders regularly fall in ways that totally undermine their ministries. Sometimes it's financial problems. Sometimes it's immorality. Sometimes it's doctrinal error. Sometimes just bad people relations. We are, of course, all aware of the TV evangelist sagas, one fall after another. I doubt if there's a person in the room here who doesn't know of a pastor or a deacon or even a choir director, otherwise of high moral character, that succumbed to temptation in such a public way that their ministry was undermined. One of the largest churches in the Tampa area now is undergoing real problems. You see, a check for $50,000 was written on an account that supposedly had $200,000 in it but it bounced. Where had the money gone? Investigation led to the fact that some of the administrators had withheld money for the government, you know, payroll deductions. But the government never got the money. All of a sudden we have a a church of the Lord millions of dollars in debt to the IRS. One gets the feeling Satan really is alive. And well, well, C.S. Lewis would agreed with that. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. I've read most of his books. One of the ones I like the best is the Screwtape Letters. This is a series of letters from the worldly, wise old devil, his name was Screwtape, to his nephew. His name was Wormwood. Wormwood's getting advice from Uncle Screwtape on what to do to accomplish Satan's agenda here on earth. Each letter, there are about 15 or 20, focuses on a different sin area. I particularly like the one dealing with the devil's presence. Here's Screwtape now writing to his nephew, Wormwood. He says, our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma here, my nephew, Wormwood. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all pleasing results of direct terrorism. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists. We can't make them skeptics. We can't make them immoral. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping keeping the patient, that's the believers, in the dark. In fact, the devils are... In their mind, predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination. If any faint suspicion of your existence as a little devil were to surface, just suggest, well, I wear red tights and I have horns. We, this is again uh, screw tape writing, we want the church to be small, not only that fewer men may know the enemy, that's Christ and God, of course, to the enemy are the enemies of the devil, but also that those who may acquire the uneasy intensity and the defensive self-righteousness of a secret society or a clique. So the first principle I see in this David Bathsheba episode is no one is bulletproof, no matter how high a moral standing you may think you have. There's a second principle here that I see in this passage. It matters where we go. And who we hang out with. David's first mistake was not being where he should have been. It was springtime and he should have been at war. But he found himself in Jerusalem in the palace with idle time on his hands. Satan loves times like this. This is when temptation really can take hold and certainly did of David. His second mistake was wandering around on the roof. He was not alone out there. Satan was out there, and Bathsheba was within eyesight. Whenever I read that passage, I just can't help myself. I want to shout out, get off the roof, David. Get off the roof. That's the title of this message, get off the roof. And as soon as I say that, I wonder... Just what roof am I on that I shouldn't be on? What roof are you on that you need to get off right away? This passage is a bit ironic to me. David was not lacking in female companionship. Now, admittedly, he was no Solomon. Solomon had 300 concubines and 700 wives, but that's a lot of women. But the Bible says David had at least 10 concubines and three wives. Maybe 13 was an unlucky number. However, he made the mistake that many believers make today. They linger in the wrong place at the wrong time. Temptation overcomes them as they seem to think they are immune to sin. I've heard many... A pastor characterized this as they're living on the edge. They're toying toying with sin. A similar situation involved Joseph and Potiphar. Joseph's behavior is role model in this particular kind of situation. Genesis 39 reads, So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me, but he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns he has entrusted to my care." One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Quite a contrast between David's behavior and Joseph, isn't it? Joseph did not linger. Joseph recognized that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he reacted immediately, didn't he? He did what I have called for years the Joseph thing and fled, not allowing temptation to gain roots. Great advice for all of us to follow, to do the Joseph thing at times. As a business traveler, I am very familiar with temptations associated with being out of town and being away. Perhaps you're familiar with the expression Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I've always referred to it as a person with split personality. I have found myself using it a lot over the years. I know many a business traveler who's Dr. Jekyll at home and who's Mr. Hyde on the road. So it reminds me of the expression, what happens in Vegas stays there. My business career involved 22 moves and nearly weekly travel. That's a lot of moves. That's a lot of travel. Frankly, I did not always have control over who I associated with or where I went, especially earlier in my career. Pressure was everywhere to conform to the world's standards. One of the great things about being retired, and I hope you appreciate this, is that you have a lot of control over your agenda. You have a lot of control over who you associate with. You've got a lot of control over where you go. Enjoy this freedom and use it wisely. I did what I could, of course, to protect myself from temptation, trying hard to avoid a split personality. I wanted to be Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Jekyll. I'm happy to say that was the case. I did an informal survey one time in my mind about business traveling and sort of the environment that business travelers are in, and I asked the question, when do most bad things happen? When do most bad things happen? You know, like alcoholism and gambling and immorality, drugs, fighting, dirty jokes, gossiping, on and on and on. When do they happen? I concluded in my mind they happened between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. So I developed the practice early in my career of about 10 p.m. I made an announcement, time for me to go back to my room. I did the Joseph thing. I think the Lord blessed that and kept me out of a lot of trouble. In the David and Bathsheba story here, there's a third principle I think we can learn. There's a third principle It matters what we occupy our mind with. Paul, of course, said it very well in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer with to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I don't know what was in David's mind when he was out on the roof there, but it was not good. His mind, no doubt, was full of impure thoughts, lustful thinking. I think most Christians, most I've known anyway, would say that they want to grow, They want to be more Christ-like. They want to offer their bodies as living sacrifices. They don't want to conform to the world. They want to be transformed by the renewing of their mind. They want to become more mature Christians. But we all struggle with good intentions. Sometimes it's difficult to convert good intentions to good actions into a God-pleasing reality. Wanting to do something... And doing it, of course, are two very different things. Many Christians, unfortunately, behave much as the world does. The worst thing that can happen to a Christian out in the business world is for someone to walk up and say, I didn't know you were a Christian, suggesting your behavior was contrary to Christian behavior. I'm proud to say that never happened to me. All too often, the salt has lost its savor, And light no longer shines. Surely God does not like what he sees in cases like that. As many of you know, Romans is my favorite book. I remind myself frequently that in the first five chapters of Romans, Paul makes two main points. We're all lost in sin. That's the bad news. But by faith in Christ, we can be declared righteous, the penalty of our sins paid for. That's the good news. But Paul goes on a step further, doesn't he? He doesn't want us to just be declared righteous. He wants us to be righteous. He wants us to grow in Christ. That's where Romans 6 through 8 come in. Paul stresses the importance of Christians renouncing sin and becoming more righteous and Christ-like. And he goes on to say it's possible now in chapter 8 because the Holy Spirit lives within us. I've often asked myself, Yes, I understand that, but what practical advice can I give to myself, could I give to others, about becoming more Christ-like, to living a more holy life? The best advice, of which I am aware, is that given by Billy Graham in his book On the Holy Spirit, where he's talking about Romans 8. He tells a story there I just love, my favorite story. I tell it to myself from time to time, and I want to tell it to you this evening You need to hear this story if you haven't. It all takes place up in the cold, far north. You see, there's an Eskimo up there that lives in the north country. And like most Eskimos, he made his life hunting and fishing, made his living hunting and fishing. He liked living alone, but about once a month, he would come to town for supplies. He also would bring with him his two dogs, Eskimo dogs, of course. One was white, and the other was black. After doing his monthly shopping, he would set up a ring and get the dogs to fighting. But before they began fighting, he would take bets from the town folk as to who would be the winner. Some months, the white dog would win. Some months, the black dog would win. However, one thing never changed. The dog the Eskimo bet on always won. The town folk weren't stupid. After a time, they realized this dogfight must be rigged. One thing I hate is a crooked dogfight. <laughs> when they had enough of losing their money, they backed the Eskimo into a corner and asked him what his winning secret was. Surely, you must be cheating. No, he said, I'm not cheating. He simply responded, the dog I feed is the dog that wins. The dog I feed is the dog that wins. The same principle applies to spiritual matters as well. The nature we feed is the nature that wins. The Christian's conflict with the world's values is one of the most common themes in the Bible and certainly one of Paul's favorite themes. He sometimes talks about this conflict as it's a matter of the flesh versus the spirit or perhaps the old self versus the new self or the old nature versus the new nature, or the world versus the thing of God. Anyway, believers are portrayed as a battleground with a lot going on inside. I've often thought if a person were determined to develop a more worldly nature, of course, I know I'm not talking about any of you, what course of action would he or she follow? Well, they would feed the worldly nature. There are a lot of ways to do that. We can watch the wrong kinds of movies, the wrong kind of TV. We can read the wrong kind of books. We can cultivate friendships with people who are bad influences. We can pursue only material goals. We can tolerate, maybe even tell dirty jokes. We can look at the wrong kind of Internet sites. We can hoard material possessions. We can refuse to share with the needy. And above all, we can minimize our devotional prayer time and church attendance. I promise you, my brothers and sisters, if you do all of these things, you will become steadily more and more worldly. However, if a person were serious about developing a more spiritual nature and becoming more Christlike and I assume that applies to all of us. What course of action should we follow? Well, we'd want to feed our spiritual nature, higher nature. Start with regular prayer time, lots of it. Serious commitment to Bible study. I mean, an hour a day, not just a quick five minutes. And then regular attendance in Sunday worship services, morning and evening, and Sunday school and prayer meetings. Did you ever think of the fact that your presence here this evening is not only an act of worship, but you are feeding your spiritual nature? That's a good thing to do. There are a lot of other things, of course, participation in small group ministry, association with other Christians, singing in the choir, Jim, actively witnessing to non believers, encouraging others to develop through discipling. The Eskimo was right and proved it, Every month, the dog he fed was the dog that wins. This principle applies directly to us as well. It is true that the nature you feed is the one that wins. As the Lord looks down and sees you, does he see a sinner saved by grace but committed to becoming more Christ-like? I pray this be so. Or does he see you as not much different than the world and wants to turn his head because he doesn't like what he sees. There's a fourth and final principle I think we can learn from David and Bathsheba. And this is a principle that many miss, but it's oh so important. Sin has terrible consequences. Sin has terrible consequences. God forgave David. No one could read Psalm 51, read a petition like that, And believe anything other than David was saved, was forgiven by the Lord, forgiven. But, capital B, capital U, capital T, David's sin with Bathsheba had terrible consequences. Uriah was murdered, Bathsheba's wife. Uriah turned out to be more righteous than David, frankly, at that moment. And when David's attempts to get her back to, get, Him back together with Bathsheba failed. He just sent a little note to Joab. You remember this story. Put him where the fighting is roughest and then pull back all the other soldiers and let him be slaughtered out there. It's exactly what happened. So Uriah is murdered. Bathsheba's first child, the child of her union with David, died even though there was great prayer and a lot of lamenting to follow. And then David's family became the role model dysfunctional family. Absalom's sister Tamar was raped by brother Amnon, David's oldest son. Amnon was then murdered by Absalom, another son, in revenge. Absalom was disloyal, forcing David to flee Jerusalem for his life. And then, of all things, David, Absalom slept with all ten. Of David's concubines in near public view in a tent probably not far from the very spot on the roof where David was standing that evening this of course was a bad example for Solomon no wonder he had 300 concubines and 700 wives no wonder he got involved in idolatry and this goes on and on the seed was planted for a divided kingdom which then led to a captivity and all these horrors and difficulties associated with israel sin has its consequences jay adams is a well-known authority on counseling and the writer of many books on the subject he says that counseling almost always fails when the emphasis is on all those factors that negatively influence the person being counseled in other words this person is the way they are because they had a poor home life or bad parents, or a single mom, or they have an alcohol problem. That's the way they are. Or they've got a drug problem. A ba- they had a bad school environment. Hey, argumentative spouse. None of us have to worry about that. Had a bad, bad influence from friends. The message in all of these things is it's not your fault. It's strictly you are a victim of circumstances. Jay Adams goes on and says, however, counseling can be successful when a person realizes that sin is the problem. The message is simple it's your fault. Fortunately, through faith in Christ, with the help of the Holy Spirit, you can do something about it. Thank the Lord for that. In Galatians 5, Paul writes, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. We are encouraged by Paul, to avoid the acts of the flesh and to produce instead the fruit of the spirit. That's another way of saying we are to starve our lower nature and feed our spiritual nature, feed our higher nature. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes the immortal words, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let us pray. Father, bless this word we've read this evening. May we as believers heed the lessons that David learned in his affair with Bathsheba, May we really understand even people with the highest of character can be overcome by temptation. Help us to be on guard. Satan is everywhere. Help us to understand it matters where we go and who we hang out with. Help us to choose wisely in this regard. Help us to understand it matters that we occupy our mind with good things. Help us to feed our spiritual nature and the star of our lower nature and help us finally to realize father that we know that sin has terrible consequences help us to take sin much more seriously in the name of jesus we pray these things amen thank you brother thank you thank you they're going to be moving right away and uh, we're going to really miss them they've been a real blessing to our church. Father, thank you for loving us and forgiving us for the sin in our life. Thank you for leading us along the paths of righteousness. Father, we pray that we could take this message tonight and uh, put it into our life and let it be a real help to us as we move through these days that we're in. Father, we pray that you'd watch over us and help us to really stand for you at each opportunity. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank